Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. We are looking uh, this year at First Corinthians here on Sunday mornings, uh, developing the theme that God has given us for the year. Simply, church matters. Church matters. In 2023, church still matters. We're looking here at this church that was found in the city of Corinth. You know, we've, we know some things about Corinth. Corinth, the city, was a prominent city. Corinth, the city, was a prosperous city. It was positioned in such a way that it had two ports, one facing east and one facing west, and it was a hub of commerce and business and was a very prosperous city. We also know that the city of Corinth wasn't just a prominent city and prosperous city. It was a perverse city. It was filled with temples, with temple prostitutes and foundries full of slaves. And so it was a perverse city. And it was in this place that God had called, had God had raised up a called out assembly for his name. And we find here the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now the church of Corinth, we have seen, was a gifted church. And it was a growing church. I'm reminded this morning that God is able to raise himself up a witness anywhere he pleases. For the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. There was a problem at Corinth. Because you see, it wasn't just a growing church and it wasn't just a gifted church. It was a grossly carnal church. The problem wasn't that the church of Corinth was in a wicked city, but that the wickedness of the world had gotten into them. We've used the analogy a couple of different times. It's the difference between a ship being in the water and water being in the ship. One is right and natural and really necessary. The other is very, very bad. And so it is not an issue that the church is in the world. It becomes an issue when the world gets in the church. And so Paul had begun to address the issues of this church. We've seen in chapter 1 the divisions, the cliques over personalities and preferences. We've seen the answer to all of these issues is the cross. Church, we can't ever afford to get away from the cross. We don't ever grow beyond the cross. The cross of Jesus. The preaching of the cross is still the answer. You're going to have to preach with me this morning, church. The preaching of the cross is still the answer. You want to know what the answer to sin is? It's the preaching of the cross. You want to know what the answer to to strongholds is? It's the preaching of the cross. You want to know what the answer to, to division and separation in the church? It's still the preaching of the cross. The answer is still the cross. And I love how Paul closes out this chapter as he closes out this section Paul is going to eliminate any room for pride in the church. He's going to eliminate any room for division in the church. And to drive home the point that the only one and the only thing worth glorying in and boasting in is that of Christ and his cross. So let's look at this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll begin in verse number 25. There the Bible says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, 
And the base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught the things <coughs> that are. Consider with me, if you would, this morning, as we consider something to boast about, number one, a curious strategy. A curious strategy. From the world's perspective, God's plan doesn't make sense. That's why we pulled in verse 25. I know Charles covered that last week. But the foolishness of God, the weakness of God. You see, the world thought that the incarnation was a foolish thing. Why would God become a man? What a foolish thought. That God would lower himself and become like his creation. The world looked at the cross and the death of Christ and found it to be a profound weakness. Why would God die? Why would Jesus Christ die on the cross? Death is weak. From the world's perspective, God's plan doesn't make sense. Man looks at God's plan and honestly says that he could think of a thousand better ways to get the job done. And by the way, the world still mocks our God. Just go out in public and talk about the fact that Jesus is coming back again. He is. He is. He could come back today, amen. The world still mocks the plan of our God. From a world's perspective, God's plan doesn't make sense. It's a curious strategy that God would become man, that he would die a substitutionary death on the cross. Well, from the world's perspective, God's plan doesn't make sense, but I love the fact that Paul doesn't stop there. Because from the world's perspective, God's people don't make a lot of sense either. Now, the call of salvation is available to whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come. But I love how one preacher put it. Look around you. The thing about the gospel light is this. The gospel light attracts some strange bugs. From the world's perspective, God's people don't make a whole lot of sense either. Paul says there are not many mighty, not many wise, not many noble have answered the call. Well, why is that? Those who have achieved in this life some sense of earthly wisdom, some sense of earthly might or nobility, we are given to trusting our own resources, are we not? That's why Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 and verse number 25 that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not a startling statement. But we as human beings, we are given to trusting our own wisdom, our own might, our own rank. And those who have achieved in this life, they tend to trust their own and Paul tells the church here to look around and to see that the ranks of the church are full of what the world would consider lesser thans. You look at those who were attracted to Jesus in his earthly ministry. Luke 15 and verse number 1, we see an example. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and the sinners for to hear him. This was not, from the world's perspective... The pick of the bunch. In fact, Paul, in case 
we're a little bit slow to get what he's trying to get across, he, he helps to define it. Not only does he say not many mighty, not many noble, not many, uh, uh, not many wise, but he talks about God have chosen the foolish things of the world. Foolish, that's the Greek word moros. From which we get our English word, you can fill in the blank there. It has the idea of being dull or a blockhead. God chosen the foolish things to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things. He's chosen the base things. Base has the idea of without family or lineage. The despised things, those that are least esteemed, the things that are not. Paul goes so far as to saying God chooses the things that are even just non-existing entities. Aren't you glad that God is willing, yea, God wants to save the worst among us? 2 Peter 3 and verse number 9, the Bible says this, that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us who are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And by the way, that's not just all those with a clean background check. That's not just all those with a decent credit score. That's not just all those who pull their weight in society. That's not just all of those that come from a certain country or a certain political party or a certain political system. God is not willing that any should perish. Any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. Now, if we're apt to be offended that Paul calls us strange bugs, that he calls us dull blockheads that come from really no lineage of note and no resource of which to speak, don't be offended. Because this has always kind of been God's M.O., Take a look at the disciples. Okay, so you got to think with me this morning. If you were Jesus, and you get to pick 12, 12, 12 that you're going to mentor for three and a half years. They're going to live with you, eat with you, they're going to represent you, and then when you're gone, you're going to entrust them to carry on the work. Where are you going to pick your 12 from? I'm going to scour the globe for the best and the brightest. From an earthly standpoint, that is not what Jesus did. Walking along the seashore, he saw some fishermen. Some stanky blue-collar fishermen. No offense, fishermen. And he said, follow me. And they said, okay. Okay. One day, he saw a publican. For those of you who don't know what that is, that is a Jewish person who was a traitor to their own people who went and worked for the occupier Romans and basically collected taxes, stole money from their own people to give to the enemy. Jesus, walking by one of these centers of uh, of taxing, saw a publican sitting there doing his job, being a traitor to his own people, and he said, hey you, traitor, follow me. He said, okay. And he did. There's another one. 
he's described as a zealot. For those of you who don't know what that is, that's basically like, so the one guy was a traitor, the zealot was like the homegrown terrorist. He was engaged in guerrilla warfare against the Romans. So you have one guy who worked for the Romans, one guy who's trying to kill the Romans, and Jesus said, hey, you follow me. I mean, could Jesus have picked a more unqualified, dysfunctional bunch? One of them, one of them wasn't even a believer. And yet God used those 11 dysfunctional men to turn the world upside down for his glory. I look in the Old Testament and I see how God looked over the nation of Israel and he found a shepherd boy. A shepherd boy with a harp. And God chose him. I look out over the Old Testament and I see how when God was bringing his people into the promised land, he he found a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab. And God used her. I look at how God even used Balaam's donkey. That's always a blessing to me. If God can use a donkey, you know what? He may still have use for us. Amen? When God was speaking to Moses, and Moses was, was questioning God, God asked Moses, he questioned right back. God says, what's in your hand? Moses said, a rod. God said, throw it down, and that rod became a serpent. You see, that's kind of God's M.O., God delights to take that which is broken, to take that which is base, to take that which is weak, to take that which is despised, to take that which is forgotten, and to make it beautiful and blessed and bountiful in his service. That's what our God delights to do. To take nobodies and to use them to do something incredible for his glory. And you know what, as we see Paul kind of lay out this curious strategy, you know what, it, it, from an earthly perspective, it doesn't make sense, does it? But I'm encouraged to know God knew what he was getting when he got us. You know what, you didn't catch him off guard. He didn't go, oh no, well now they're coming over, what am I supposed to do with this? God wasn't caught off guard by your past. God wasn't caught off guard by your problems. God's not caught off guard by your confusion. God's not caught off guard by your brokenness. God knew what he was getting when he got us. But I'm going to tell you, it reminds us that when we consider something that we have to boast of, it's not ourselves. The glory is not of us saints. It is not our powers combined that we do something. No, hallelujah, this only works because he knows what he is doing. So we consider this morning Paul reminding this Corinthian church, reminding us something we have to boast about. We see, first of all, the curious strategy. But the curious strategy, it kind of culminates, if you would, in a convicting simplicity. A convicting simplicity. Look at verse number 29. And I want you to read this in unison with me. 
the Bible says here that no flesh should glory in his presence. Let's read it together again. That no flesh should glory in his presence. That is the simple, convicting point of this. No flesh can glory before our God. We all come humbly by the cross. You see, every person that has ever been born is a sinner in need of salvation. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But God so loved the world, the Bible says, that he sent his only begotten son, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Every man, woman, boy or girl who enters the family of God, we all come but one way, and that is by the cross. You know, even the not many that Paul referenced at the beginning must humble themselves at the cross. You know, Paul, he didn't say that no wise, no mighty, no noble come, verse 26. No, he said not many. But even those who from a worldly standpoint would consider themselves wise or mighty or noble must humble themselves at the cross. I I think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul surely fit that bill. He was was a man of great wisdom. He was a man of great learning. He was a man of great influence and authority and power. He was a man of great nobility. And and you look at Philippians chapter 3. Paul lines a lot of this out. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he might Whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Paul says, I don't know what you think you can brag about, but here's the thing. I can brag about way more than you can brag about. And I won't list all of his boastings for you, but he does. He lists his lineage and his training and his heritage and all of the things that he did in the flesh for the religion of Judaism. But though he had accomplished earthly wisdom and earthly might in some form of earthly nobility, I want you to see Paul's summary of it in verse number 7. He says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Verse number 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. That I may win Christ. You see I don't care who you are. I don't care what you think you bring to the table. But in comparison to our God. No flesh will glory in his presence. we consider something to boast about here it is ready it's not me and it's not you it's not what you've built it's not what you've given it's not what you've done it's not about me and you and it cannot ever be about me and you this inspiration we're going to do next Sunday night guess what it's not about it's not about me and it's not about you 
It's not a performance. It's about praising His name. If it's a performance, don't do it. Don't do it. If it's entertainment, don't do it. But if it's out of a heart of praise to lift high Jesus, well, let's lift Him up. Amen. The convicting simplicity of this curious strategy is simply this, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Here's the thing. You have to come to the point to realize, and we have to be reminded of this over and over and over again. We are but clay. You know, sometimes we, we come to the Lord in salvation and we, we realize we bring nothing and salvation is all of God. But then we get to a certain point in our Christian lives and we think somehow that we have, we have contributed to the larger picture that we have made something of ourselves. But we are always still but clay. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are but clay. And the preaching of the cross, as Brother Charles talked about last week, the eminence of the cross, the curious strategy of God, strips away anything that we might use to hold ourselves above our brothers and sisters in Christ. The cross strips away anything that we might use to hold down our brothers and sisters of Christ. I think it's good for us to remember, you look at some of the saints of the Bible, and and based on some of our pharisaical treatment of one another, most of them would not be welcome in our churches today. You think David would be welcome in our church after we ran a background check on him? I mean, you think Peter would be welcome in the church after he denied Christ three times? After he swore like he did? You, you, you think Thomas would be welcome in a lot of churches after, after getting in front of everybody and doubting the Lord the way he did? No, I think a lot of times we forget that the cross strips away anything we might use to hold down others. By the way, the cross also strips away anything that we could hold against or between ourselves, between one another. Why? Because it's paid in full. It's paid in full. What they did to you doesn't compare to what they did to him, and it's paid in full. The ground is level at the cross. And the convicting simplicity is that there is no flesh that should glory in his presence. There is no flesh that should glory in his presence. I love the scene from Revelation 5. We're going to read this together. I want you to, I want you to picture this in your mind. And then we're going to make some, make some uh, comments here. Revelation 5 beginning in verse 1. John wrote this. And I saw... In the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book written within and on the backside and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much. Because no man was found worthy 
to open and to read the book, neither to look. We're going to pause right there, Liz. Neither to look thereon. I want you to think about the scene here. This book, uh, this scroll, as it were, it, it is representative of the, the, the title deed of the universe, the, 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 the ruler, the sovereign ruler, the one who is worthy to rule and reign. I want you to note that when the cry went out, who's worthy to take up that position? Not one man. Not one man. Not one man in heaven. Not one man on earth. Not one man under the earth. Not one man. Not one man. Not one man from the thousands of years of human history. Not one man. Not one. Not one. Not one. Not only was not one man found worthy... To open the book, not one man was found worthy neither to look there on. None of us. None of us. Not an apostle. Not an Old Testament saint. Not a pastor. Not a deacon. None of us are worthy even to look at it. Look what happens, verse number 5. One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, In the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent forth unto all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. And every one of them harps uh, full of, and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation hath made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth and I beheld I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. You see not a one of us are worthy but when the Lamb shows up when Jesus shows up do you see what happens? I don't see humanity jockeying for position anymore. I don't see 
cliques and preferences and divisions. I, 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 don't, see, I don't see people arguing over, over the brand of vacuum cleaner we should buy or the color of the carpet or the walls. I, I don't see people fighting over parking spots and pews. and I don't see people uh, bickering over nickels and dimes. Do you know what we see? We see every human humble themselves before the Lamb. Praising him. Blended into a sea of praise. You see, in heaven, we finally get it figured out. It's not about me. And it's not about you. It's about him. I have nothing of my own to boast about in his presence. And that eliminates any ground for selfishness. Any ground for sinfulness eliminates any ground for division in the body. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I think the further application of this is helpful for us. I don't really bring anything and neither do you. God doesn't really need us. I, I know, I know, you're special, and you've been told you're special for many years now, and you are special. You are. But God still doesn't need us. It, just the verse before, Paul said that he's able to, the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are. Meaning, God doesn't even need something that currently exists to accomplish what he wants to do. God doesn't need us. But might I offer before we leave this point, it's better than that. He doesn't need us, but praise Him, He wants us. He wants us. As we consider something to boast about this morning, we see, number one, a curious strategy. We see, number two, a, a, a convicting simplicity. But I want you to see how Paul brings us to a close. Verse 30 and 31, he says, But of Him... <coughs> Excuse me, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You see, we see a curious strategy. The plan of God doesn't make much sense to the world, and the people of God don't make much sense to the world, but praise God, he knows what he's doing. Amen. A convicting simplicity. God doesn't need me, but praise God, He wants me. I want us to see this morning, finally, a complete sufficiency. You see, this is the beautiful thing. He wants me, and He wants you, and He doesn't just have us to use us. No, the Bible says that, but of Him are ye in Christ. That He establishes a relationship with us. That we are in Christ, in the sphere of Christ. And when we come to Christ, by the way, everything changes for the Christian when we get saved. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 17 says this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You see, when I come to Christ, I go from being a child of the devil to a child of the king. 
When I, become, when I come to Christ and get saved, I, I get transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I get passed from death to life. I, I go from being an alien, a foreigner, to a part of the family of God. I go from being a debtor with a debt I could never pay to being a joint heir with Christ. When I get put in Christ, praise God, everything changes. My position changes. My disposition changes. My beliefs change. My behavior changes. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse number 4, the Bible says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he hath loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. By the way, church, everything that we are that is worth anything is found in Christ. So you know what? We do have something to boast of. We ought to make our boast in Christ and what he has done for me. In Christ, we find not just a relationship, but all the resources necessary In verse number 30, it talks about uh, are in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom. You see, God has chosen the foolish things, right? Those, Those morosses in the Greek. The English word's not nice, but as long as they use the Greek word, it's okay. But even though we are morosses in the flesh... In Christ we are, we have wisdom. We are wise. In the flesh we are weak. But in Christ we have righteousness and strength. In the flesh we are base and despised, but in Christ we have sanctification and redemption. He is transforming our mind, our morals, our motives, and our members. Everything worth anything that we are and everything worth anything that we become and everything worth anything that we accomplish is found in Christ. And church, we do have something to boast of. And we ought to make our boast in Christ, of Christ, and what He is doing in me. You know what? Church matters. But we better get it right because church is not about a man. It's not about a pastor. It's not about its own prominence. It's not about you and your felt needs. The church is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Let's lift up Jesus. After all, he's still the answer. He's the answer to every hurt. He's the answer for every heart. He's the answer for every home. The answer is still Jesus. But hear me. We talk about what we're going to make our boast of and what we're going to glory in. We better make sure that we're not allowing anything in this world to compete with the place that Jesus ought to hold. Can we do rubber meets the road? Jesus explicitly said concerning communion, this do in remembrance of me. Some of us have already given ourselves six reasons why, eh, 
it'll be all right if I miss this one. Some of you are trying to figure out, boy, do I really think he can get communion in and me get back to the Super Bowl party in time? Let me ask you, what are we going to glory in? A football game? Or the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm going to tell you, we better make sure we're not allowing anything to compete with Jesus and the praise and glory he deserves. He is worthy. I'm going to tell you, we need to declare that he is all in all. The world needs to see that he is all in all. A complete sufficiency. I'm going to tell you, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want you to know that here at Harvest, we're just a bunch of nobodies who met the one somebody that changes everything. Here at Harvest, we're just a bunch of nobodies who honestly want to tell everybody that Jesus will save anybody who comes to him. If you're here this morning and you've never received the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you need to know that being a Christian and, 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 and having a home in heaven and being a part of the family of God is not about a church. It's not about a church. It's not about being this or that. Or, you, you're not going to put it. Salvation is not an institutional label. It is an individual decision. So in love, God doesn't really care what your grandma, where your grandma went to church, Right? Or what your family has always been. It's not, a, it's not an institutional thing. It is an individual thing. It's not about being baptized. It's not about doing good works. It is about recognizing that not just have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But that I have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not just that the wages of sin is death. But that the wages of my sin is death. And it's about making the decision to turn from my sin and turn to the Savior. If you're here this morning and you've, you've never received the Lord Jesus as your Savior, might I, might, I, might I ask of you, get it settled even today. In just a moment, we're going to have what we call a time of invitation. It's a time where we pause and we seek to consciously respond to how God has spoken to us. And if God has spoken to you about the matter of needing to, to get saved this morning, I want to encourage you to get my attention, get someone's attention. We'd love to take God's word and show you how you, how you, how you can know that you're a child of God. Church, church matters, amen? But hear me, if church is going to matter like it is meant to, we need to make sure that the right things matter to the church. I'm going to tell you, it's easy to get, to get stuck on preferences and personalities and programs and plans and developments and, and, and community prominence and this and this and this and this. It's not about that. Our glory, our boast, our passion has got to be in the Lord and the Lord alone. Because when that happens, 
when we find that Jesus is the one and only thing we boast in, I'm going to tell you what happens. Sin cannot remain. We'll tell you when our boast and our glory is truly in the Lord alone, division cannot remain. When our glory and boast is truly in the Lord alone, bitter and hard hearts cannot remain. When our glory is in the Lord alone, worldliness cannot remain. And I'll leave you with this thought. The truth is you can always brag on Jesus. You can always brag on Jesus. But I'll ask you this, how long has it been? How long has it been? According as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory.